he says like I'm the parent of the guy who made the farting corpse movie (laughs) which I thought was hilarious Welcome to Psychocinematic, a podcast where we analyse depictions of mental illness and disability in popular film and TV. I'm your host, Stephanie Fanasia. I'd like to start by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional custodians of the land on which I record this podcast on today. And I'd also like to pay respects to the Wurundjeri elders past and present and extend this respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people from other communities who are listening today. And I'd like to acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and we are living on stolen land. And I'd also like to introduce my special guest, Jordan Bastion, to the podcast. Welcome, Jordan. Hi, it's great to be here. Uh, I am on Gadigal land and I would like to pay respect to the people of this land as well. Fantastic. Thank you. So would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself? So my name is Jordan Bastian. I am a film programmer and I work as a theatrical consultant for a distributor called Arcadia and I have ADHD and other things as well. And I want to just gush a little bit on when Michael and I went and saw Flux Gourmet at Cinema Nova, I think it was, here in Melbourne. Did not realise that the premiere dessert and drink that you got was all organised and arranged by Arcania, thus yourself, which was amazing. It's one of the kind of fun things about the job is getting to help arrange premieres and little special treats and it's pretty nice. It's a pretty good job. We don't often go to movie premieres, but those little spoils make it really worth it. And I just want to encourage anyone listening, if you're a film person, go to a premiere because they usually don't cost that much more. No, you have free things. Everyone loves free things. I guess uh, we knew each other years and years ago back in Brisbane. And I remember that you were a very big film buff and worked at the local uh, indie DVD shop as well as the cinema there. So I guess cinema and uh, film has been a really big part of your life since forever. Yeah, it's been a huge part of my life. I think I owe it very much to my dad. Uh, He loves film as well and he hates the classification system. So (laughs) whenever we went to the movies, when I was kind of beyond 10 years old, it was what he wanted to watch rather than what was suitable, which I think was a good thing. Probably exposed you to a lot of movies. It did. but shaped it shaped your taste? Yeah, it shaped a lot of my childhood and a lot of my teen years and my mind was kind of opened up to the world of cinema from a really young age. So I thank them a lot for that. And then I kind of have come to the realisation that it is one of my kind of hyper-focus topics. I'm a bit so of a special interest. About, yes, watching movies and how many movies I watch and how I watch them. So it's a good, it's a good little thing to have, a good interest to have. Could be worse. So today we're doing, and I actually asked you if you would be happy to do this film, knowing that you'd probably say yes. We're doing everything, everywhere, all at once. And I went and saw it at the cinema and thought this movie is definitely a psychocinematic film. But I wanted to ask you, what was your experience of seeing this film? You know, it's really funny is I got to see it at a kind of preview screening at the start of the year and watching it with a friend And I could recognise that it was a great film. I knew it was really funny, but I really struggled with the kind of chaos of it. And I could never kind of pinpoint Mm. it. And when you messaged me and said, oh, have you heard that the director's come out and this is his kind of homage to having ADHD, I was just like, oh, that makes total sense. (laughs) I cannot handle someone else's chaos. And how (laughs) overwhelming it was to me. 
it is a great film though and I think it explores it in a lot of interesting ways but yeah there are a lot of things I kind of struggle with with it as well. A little bit of intro into the film itself. So it's by Daniels, they call themselves, which is Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert. Uh, it's distributed through A24 and whenever it's an A24 film, I know that I'm either going to love it or just think about it for years. Their previous film was Swiss Army Man, uh, which was just an absolute trip. Have you seen Swiss Army Man, Jordan? I have. I love Swiss Army Man so much. Yeah. It's yeah. such, like, I can't even describe it. It's such a movie like no other. And it made me really love Daniel Radcliffe. <laughs> oh, I 100%. It was the first movie kind of post Harry Potter where I kind of clicked and I was like, I actually think Daniel Radcliffe is a really, really great guy. Yeah. Interesting kind of behaviours. And I also love that he was just like, I made my money and now I can do whatever I want, which yeah, is Yeah, I can off. do these really obscure films yeah. and also play Weird Al Yankovic, which I'm yes. really looking forward to seeing. <laughs> uh, not what I, who I would have pegged to play him, but I'm looking forward to seeing his performance. I also think like the fact that he looks pres- like is so incredibly like him is just insane it's something that I wouldn't have recognized I didn't even realize he would but he does the film uh everything everywhere all at once stars Michelle Yeoh Ki Hui Kwan who is short round from Indiana Jones and Data from Goonies which I actually didn't realize until I started looking up information for this movie and I was like oh that makes so much sense So so good Stephanie Hsu and Jamie Lee Curtis uh, it wasn't quite a low budget for what we see uh, and a very tight three-week shooting schedule. And the Russo brothers helped develop the script and I think produced the film as well. Everything Everywhere All at Once tells the story of Evelyn Wang, Michelle Yeoh, a middle-aged Chinese-American woman who's running a failing laundromat with her husband, Waymond, played by Kei Hui Kwan. Uh, being audited by the IRS and failing at connecting with and fully accepting her daughter, Joy, Stephanie Shu. On the morning of her previously estranged father's birthday party, which, depending on the plot, is also coinciding with Chinese New Year, depending on what plot you read, she has an appointment with the auditor and her daughter is also trying to introduce Becky as her girlfriend at the party. Waymond is also trying to talk to her about a divorce in an attempt to get her attention and talk about saving their marriage. While on Evelyn's way to be audited, her husband undergoes a spontaneous shift in personality and begins to give her odd instructions, telling her that the fate of the multiverse is at stake and she might be the only one who can save it. We slowly find out that this is due to a depressed, omnicidal, multiversal entity named Jobu Tupaki, who is trying to find Evelyn and plots to destroy the multiverse using an everything bagel. This alternate universe version of Wayman, aka Alpha Wayman, trains her to verse jump, quote unquote, that is travel to one of the other universes in the multiverse. And she manages to do so using an earpiece, taking an action of very low probability, for example, eating lip balm, putting her shoes on the wrong feet, or telling the IRS officer that she loves her and concentrating on a different life experience, which allows her to verse jump. Evelyn finds out that she's lived infinite lives where her many unfinished hobbies and projects flourish and she's a singer, a kung fu expert, a chef, etc. But in this universe, she is what Wayman calls her worst self, which makes her the one to save the multiverse. While all this is going on, Evelyn is also trying to concentrate on the audit conducted by the gruff Deirdre Bobeardry. 
I didn't realize that's her last name. Until I was like, oh my god. Played hilariously by Jamie Lee Curtis, who gives them until 6 p.m. that night to fix up their taxes or face the end of their laundromat business. Jobu Tupaki is quickly revealed to be a version of Evelyn's daughter Joy, whose mind was broken by her own Evelyn and who can now shift across the multiverse at will. In doing so, her mind has become increasingly nihilistic, depressed, and hopeless. It turns out that Jobu Tupaki doesn't want to kill Evelyn because she's the chosen one, but has been seeking the person who can shift through the multiverse because she was hoping for some different perspective to make some sense or find some meaning in it all. Evelyn learns how best to verse jump and realises she needs to become like Jobu in order to defeat her. Once she achieves this ability, she realises what she needs to do is seek the kindness and joy in life and be more like Wayman, who emulates these values. She both approaches Jobu and Joy with the possibility of just being with each other and making whatever you want in life meaningful. And while Joy asks to be let go, Evelyn says what she's been needing to all along, that whatever happens, she wants to be here with Joy. They reconnect, sort out the taxes, and they're going to be okay. The usual step we do now is talk about the lived experiences of the actors and the um, creators of the film. The only thing I know about the Daniels is, is how he discovered he has it by the research that he did on this film, which I found really interesting, and how he yes. was trying to do as much research as possible. And all of a sudden it was like four in the morning and he's crying saying, I think I have ADHD as well, which... I mean, I relate, very relatable. <laughs> yeah. Can I ask when you got your diagnosis? So I got my diagnosis last June. Oh, wow. Um, so quite uh, recent. Super recent, super unexpected. and mm. didn't go looking for it at all. <laughs> had you ever suspected that that might be going on for you? Lit- I literally had never, ever expect, like, expected or thought about it at all. I was the middle of the pandemic, like everyone else. And I've got a really great psychologist who I've been seeing for about 10 years. And I was sending him these like long emails because all of my like masking kind of mechanisms had disappeared. Mm. I couldn't leave yes. my house and I couldn't overwork. So I would send him these long emails that were pretty much along the lines of why do I feel like the smartest, dumbest person alive? And Mm. And why can't I do this? And why can't I do that? And after a few weeks, he broached the subject with me and I was so resistant to it. I was just like, no way. Because in my mind, people with ADHD were young boys who were hyperactive Mm -hmm. and annoying in school. And he was like, oh, just let me send you some things. And it was that moment where he sent me all of these um, kind of readings to do. And at four in the morning, I am crying in my room, just being like, my world has been opened and how can wow. I not see this? And part of the diagnosis process, I know everyone has a different story. It's the most ridiculous thing to get diagnosed. There's no kind of straight way to do it. Mm. Um, but one of the kind of things that seems common is you have to get someone that's known you since childhood that is mm-hmm. older than you to fill out a questionnaire. And so I gave it to my cousin, who I'm quite close with. And when I brought it up with her, she was like, oh, yeah, of course. And I was just like, could you not have t- told me it's about been good this? information a little yeah, earlier? Like, of course, it all makes total sense. Like we've always thought this. And I was just like, yeah, cool. You could have told me 30 years ago. That would have been really nice. I guess it's a, it's, you know, one of those things that people don't know how to broach to 
as well in terms of if if you sent someone around you might have or to be neurodivergent in some way like is this information actually going to help them and and you know like I think the pandemic did unleash a lot of understanding of oh all of these things that were sort of structures in my life that helped me cope are gone and I'm struggling and it sort of leads to that sort of conclusion. I think that's a good point to make as well. When I, the first step that I took after talking to my psychologist was getting a referral from my doctor and I couldn't Mm. get into my doctor. So I went to, you know, one down the road and his response was just, why do you need to know? Like you've Ah. lasted so long. Why do you need to know? And Mm. at that stage, I couldn't give an answer because I didn't know how important it was to know and how, you know, how much so much of your life and your confidence has these put on hold because of it. Um, But it's that classic thing of people just being too afraid to kind of bring things up because it's like, well, do people need to know? Do they want to know? Yeah. And still, there's still so much stigma around any sort of diagnosis that sort of plays a role in it as well. And did you once getting the diagnosis, do you think it was helpful for you? For you, I think it's incredibly helpful. Yeah. I mean, medication and has changed my life in mm-hmm. every way. Um, just being able to have a clear, concise brain is beyond incredible, you know, especially at work or especially mm-hmm. when watching a movie. I don't know how <laughs> I've watched so many movies before, but there's so many things in my life that I haven't had an answer for, that I kind of think I always just played down to the fact that there was something massively wrong with me, whether Mm -hmm. it was really struggling at school or at parties with groups of friends really feeling like I couldn't communicate or I couldn't keep up with conversation or just the constant questioning of my abilities or the constant overwork. I'm known Mm -hmm. in my social circles as being a workaholic and you know Mm -hmm. it was the realization of it's all of this is masking so that you don't seem lazy or stupid or dumb and so kind of having all these answers is was incredible is incredible it's still incredible I kind of it's the only thing that's made me feel good about myself in a long time and feel like I have a future that's worth not that I didn't have a future that was worth not worth living but there feels like there's so many more opportunities now because I yeah. have some sort of understanding of what's going on. A lot of the mm. time I don't have understanding, but there's more clarity than I've ever yeah, had. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, someone, I can't remember who it was, said it's it's like realising that you've lived life on hard mode this whole time and there's a way <laughs> to reduce the difficulty level. <laughs> yeah, but even just just knowing the fact that, you know, life is incredibly hard at times because this life is not designed for Mm. people that aren't neurotypical. That's kind of an incredible thing to know and to have just in your back pocket as a nice little reminder when you are really struggling with something. It's very, it's, it's very validating and it, it can be quite empowering knowing there's nothing, you haven't done anything wrong or you're not a lazy person or et cetera. It's just that the the world is not set up for your your brain, essentially. Yeah. yeah. And your brain works. It is. It's an empowering thing. It's it's great. I wouldn't I would suggest to anyone, especially parents, if you have any kind of thought or inkling or see any struggle, I think there's absolutely no harm 
in getting that diagnosis because it's just going to set people up from an earlier stage of life. Mm. And I look back and I try not to do this. It's the biggest thing that I know a lot of people struggle with where they kind of mourn what could have been. But Mm. I do look back to like parts, especially high school, and just being like, oh, my God, life would have been so much easier. It would be hard not to look back and think, you know, things could be better and get caught up in that. Yeah, I think you really have to make a an effort to kind of stop yourself from going down that rabbit hole. Otherwise, where does it end? Where does anything yeah, end? That's right. And that's a good message too, because I feel like diagnosis has always been in and out of favor. Um, you know, I've in quite recent times it's been sort of, you know, do we really need a diagnosis? It just puts a label on it on a child and and there's a lot of people that feel that way about ADHD particularly. I'm not one of them. Um, but I think seeing it less as a label and more of an understanding of how one's brain is is sort of wired can do so much more and be so useful for someone. A hundred percent. And I think, I think hopefully in the future, I don't have a problem with the label at all. The issues that I have is that other people have yes. problems from these preconceived ideas about what ADHD is or what any sort Mm -hmm. of neurodiversity is and of course it's the extreme measures that get documented and those stories absolutely need to be shared but every story needs to be shared Mm -hmm. and so yeah it's it's not a bad thing and I can do things that other people we can do things that other people absolutely cannot do which doesn't get talked about enough as well that is true that is very true and I guess that leads to the Evelyn that we see in the film because, um, like you said, Daniel kind of wanted to tell a story about someone with the tendencies that you know, someone with ADHD has and he didn't kind of realise what that, that was ADHD until he started looking into the research. Um, it all came from his own experience, like you said. I was doing some research around Josh Thomas and how he got his autism diagnosis not that long ago. Uh, And it was pretty much the same way. He was writing for um, Everything's Going to Be Okay, where he has an autistic um, sister in that show. And as he started researching, he's like, am I autistic? And everyone around him was like, hell yeah, like similar to me. So it sounds like, I I don't know, I I find that that's a nice way of people understanding, like I want to write about my life and then realising, oh, this actually fits with this thing that could be going on for me and getting that diagnosis and that being sort of useful. So I think it would have been such an interesting process as well of having this idea for a character, doing the research so that you could write it well, realising that you also have ADHD and then kind of probably going through this journey of getting diagnosed or figuring out how to work best with your brain with making mm. a movie about it. I think that, I mean, if you're going to make a movie and you've you've got ADHD, it's probably a really great way to do it. Um, yeah, it makes it very authentic and true to life, really. Yeah, and because so much of it is chaos, I think that, I mean, it obviously marries up really well with the story yeah, as well. Yeah, definitely. I guess the other side of the film and and the sort of lived experience that that Daniels were sort of coming from was around some of that um, cultural and intergenerational trauma Um, and the, I guess, what plays out in the film is very much a result of those things Um, and I found that really interesting and I'm always, if there's intergenerational trauma in a film, I'm always like, 
like a radar around it. So Quan spoke about how it's a, the movie's kind of a reflection on having to his having his parents have to deal with the fact that he's their kid. <laughs> um, he says like I'm the parent of the guy who made the farting corpse movie, <laughs> which I thought was hilarious. And he's sort of trying to he was trying to sort of share a very gracious portrayal of the relationship with his parents. Um, so that was also taken from his experience as an immigrant family who's, um, you know, got quite a bit of a divide in that generational sort of gap. Yeah, I, th- I think it's really interesting to look at as well because I feel like so often we feel really isolated from from other people mm. because of struggling to make a connection or or hold interest or have a conversation. Um, mm. It is something that I, I think, subconsciously have also worried about. I feel really lucky that I'm very close with my dad, but I feel like it's probably because he is also undiagnosed ADHD mm-hmm. where there's that instant connection. And it's not something that I had with my mum, which there was a real lack of connection there. And I think carrying around, I think you see it with her character kind of perfectly of just really not understanding how to connect with her daughter yes in multiple different levels and I think that neurodivergence is a big part of that and the stress of how do I form that connection there's that classic scene where um she kind of runs after her in the car and as she really wants to say something she really has like she wants to have this heartfelt moment and the only thing that she can comment on is her weight I know which is awful but it's that classic thing of just like so badly wanting a connection but just having no way of just of making not it. yeah not being able to and I yeah. think that scene is relatable to many <laughs> children and parents definitely relatable <laughs> to me and it's like it's it's almost that she's trying to show that she cares about her because of all the layers of um, where she's come from her life you know the the neurodiversity of her brain as well as everything that's going on for her at the moment that's how it comes out, which is not her intent to hurt her her daughter at all. Yeah. Um, but it's the only sort of script that she has at that time and doesn't realise how damaging it becomes. Yeah, I find that really interesting. It is, yeah. I think there's many levels just on that one particular scene that mm. are great to explore. And I have no kind of experience, lived experience for talking about coming from a family with trauma like that or or coming from an immigrant family, but I feel like there is so much with that as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, yeah, I've only got, you know, Euro experience, <laughs> European family background experience in that in that regard. But I think it's also worth mentioning that both Daniels wanted to make a movie about what it felt to live like at the moment, um, particularly within the pandemic and having coming back to this world where there's so much going on at once because it does feel like chaos right now. (laughs) Um, So much chaos going on. I was just going to say it's great that it's a pandemic film that has nothing to do with living in a pandemic as well. Yes. Like it's got every other factor. Quite refreshing. Without just being (laughs) like, just a reminder, we are living in unprecedented times right now. And I guess that sort of hucks back to your experience too of of being diagnosed post-lockdown. It, they kind of set out to make this film and realising that that living in a post-pandemic world comes with so many struggles as someone uh, who's neurodiverse and very similar to what this, what you've just shared as well. Yeah, there's a, there's a very, very big collective of pandemic people that have figured out their story in the yes. last year, 
it's quite overwhelming, but yes. And I guess TikTok helped <laughs> in terms of self-diagnosis. Yeah. <laughs> Michelle Yeo, I didn't get a huge amount of information of like her background. Obviously, she's got, she feels quite relatable in terms of living in America, having lots of immigrant families. And she was just kind of saying how it's really nice to have more Asian stories on screen. And with something like um, Crazy Rich Asians, really sort of paving the way a little bit because that movie was so massive um, to have a lot more of these stories um, with you know, Asians as uh, particularly female Asian characters and actors in the forefront and just sharing that, you know, Asians have been part of the community and society for a very long time. So it's really good to see more of those people on your screen and that it shouldn't be a surprise because they're very much part of the community, uh, which isn't kind of relevant to this topic, but I just thought it was interesting to share that. Well, especially she's such, she's such an incredible actress She's and amazing. She has such a prolific career. And it's yes. just like in these roles that a lot of people don't see, or a lot yes. of people kind of go, like, oh, I did see that movie. Like, I did see Crouching Tiger. And she is incredible in this. But this, I feel like, just truly showcased every single part of her ability, whether it's her comedic timing or mm. how great she is an actress or how great she is at stunt work and fight yes. scenes. You know, I think it's so incredibly important. I love that the world of cinema is changing so that we see more stories and more faces on our screens. Um, and I just love that it's just like she hasn't been left behind in that regard. No, like she's, yeah. She's, you know. She's getting the respect she deserves. Exactly. In Hollywood yes. as well as um, the Asian film industry. And I guess that also relates to Kei Hui Kwan um, and I find his story very interesting because, you know, he was obviously a child star and he was sort of, I think, um, he was living in America when they cast Indiana Jones and obviously he was so loved. But then after that sort of fame that he had as a kid, the audition started drying up because there weren't that many roles for Asian men. And he was... I've- listened to an article, like I listened to a podcast with him where he said the only roles he was getting offered were those exact same roles mm-hmm. over and over and over again. Going on the same sort of trope. Yeah, yeah. which is so devastating. Yeah, it was such a shame that it didn't go any further. But he did get into action scene work in Hollywood um, and worked in there for quite a long time. And then this was kind of his, his comeback to film, which – was just he's just incredible he's so and he would have it took so much I think it takes so much talent to be able to act the way he did in this film because he really was playing multiple characters but also the same character so interesting yeah I love that like he's another that saw crazy rich Asians and kind of he said his mind was blown and he kind of realized that there was space on screen for him again yeah he yeah didn't want to miss out and you're right, he is – I honestly can't imagine anyone else that would do the role that he does it, because, the way he does it, because mm-hmm. there's so many multiple types of characters that you have to play. But at the heart of it and in the heart of every character is this warmth and this love and this depth, which is so hard to translate across, I think, especially yes. in a film that is so chaotic. To be almost a soft landing ground continuously in a film of chaos 
is a pretty special thing to be able to do and he's so perfect at it. Yeah, 100% agree. I did read in an article that he said he he doesn't think he could have played this character um, 10 or 15 years ago. Like he needed to have the life experience that he had to be able to provide the depth of the character, um, which is he's a very insightful person. And can you imagine how nerve-wracking it would be like you haven't acted aside from like action action stunt work in a movie in what like 30 years yeah and your comeback is with these two powerhouse women <laughs> like I would be terrified uh, acting alongside Michelle and Jamie yeah would just be like oh Holy fuck. Yeah. And uh, interestingly too, he definitely relates to that immigrant story as well. Um, they were living in Vietnam in uh, what was called Saigon at the time uh, and they tried to get out twice and uh, they had to split up and then ended up uh, boarding a boat with thousands of other people um, in what was called the quote-unquote boat people crisis of the late 1970s and early 80s and ended up in a Hong Kong refugee camp. Um, so a little bit of, of trauma, I'm assuming in his background, as well as some family intergenerational trauma there. Um, so I think he definitely would have related to the story. Uh, let's move on to Stephanie Shu, who I absolutely love. She's like amazing. <laughs> I just want to see everything she's in now. And yeah, I didn't really read very much about her. Did you read anything about her sort of life experience or anything? I, I didn't. And you're right. Like she's She's one that I'm, I wish that I knew more about. I'm literally just looking her up now because <laughs> I'm like, have I seen anything that you've been in? Yeah, she's in The Marvelous Mrs. Mabel. Have you seen Marvelous Mrs. Mabel? Yeah, no, she, I haven't, but I definitely need to. <laughs> it's very good. She plays an incredible character in the later series called May. But she, I mean, she's one now, like looking at her previous work, it's a lot of kind of one episode here and voice work here. Mm. Um, but I but feel like she's going to be quite interesting someone. stuff as well, it seems like. Yeah. I feel like we'll see a lot of her in the future, which is great. I was just watching an interview on Collider where she was talking about just like the creation of the film in that they had this very big sense of, of um, kindness and family together and they checked in every day, did warm-ups together. Every Friday they gave awards to people on set, um, even in those sort of smaller roles to make sure that like they got to know each other. So there was that really that sense of of connection and love and kindness on the set. Stephanie was very much like what what was happening on the film was happening on the set as well. And I think you can see that in the film as well. I think so. I think even between like, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis is this villain um, for the first half of it, there's still something there. I don't know. I feel like there's still a bond through all of them. I think they're all having a really good time yeah. at the same time. And on that note with Jamie Lee Curtis, she's uh, had a bit of a life of uh, obviously she's an incredible actress and I've always loved her. She's had an addiction to substance uh, abuse and she experienced that for some time, but she's been clean and sober for 22 years. Well, this was in, I think this was a 2020 interview and her, there was addiction in her family. Obviously her father was Tony Curtis. It was all, yeah. obviously in her drugs. There's a, lot of, a lot of trauma there as well, right? Like I'm sure so Father much. essentially, I mean, her mother was Janet Lee from. Oh yes, of films. course. Um, and her father, Tony Curtis, essentially abandoning them for a life of, drugs and alcohol and women and, and it was very much noted that he wasn't a huge part of her life until 
her later life. Mm. And I think she she's kind of still quite vocal about how she, I mean, he's passed away now, but how she never kind of went easy on him and always was, he was always held accountable for that. And mm. um, it wasn't kind of a nice mended relationship at the end of things as well. Mm. And then I think as well, just growing up in that Hollywood kind of industry as well as not an ideal space to be. <laughs> yes. No, not, not a great place to grow up. So yeah, probably some complex grief going on there as well. And um, she did say that her brother, Nicholas, died from a heroin overdose at the age of 21. So that would have been absolutely traumatic to go through. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely some – I mean, her character wasn't quite emanating some of those experiences, but some lived experience there. Let's talk about the accuracy of the film in terms of – it's a film that did set out to sort of show undiagnosed ADHD – in your perspective, Jordan, how do you think they show and do they depict that accurately in Evelyn? I think they absolutely do. And it's, to me, the most telling, this is so like funny, but the most telling sign that she has undiagnosed ADHD is the fact that she is struggling this much with her taxes. <laughs> it is yeah. such a simple And the piles of receipts. <laughs> that are still quite well organised. True, true, true. When you look at them. But the fact that it is a job that probably didn't take that long could have been sold very easily and they have sat there partially organised to the point where she's going to lose her business and potentially her family over it. Mm-hmm. To me that's the biggest sign that absolutely, and I can connect with that and I'm sure a lot of other people can connect with that. Mm-hmm. But it's also that mixed in with the fact that her life is chaos because she is literally trying to do absolutely everything everything which is everywhere all at once (laughs) and to the point where she's almost refusing help from anybody Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and there are so many people there are people you know her father is in her life causing trouble but there are so many people whether it's her her husband or even customers that come in that love her and want to help Mm -hmm. to some degree and she flat out refuses to see it as well um I think it's a very big part of it is that quite relatable for you? Is that do you see yourself in some of those? Oh, 100%. I mean, up until a week ago, I had literally three jobs, three full time jobs. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, and it's the classic thing I hate. I am more than willing to help other people to the detriment of myself, but I hate asking for help because, again, that is a sign that I cannot do something that other people can't do. And I feel like that is me, that previously was me admitting something something wrong with myself before I kind of saw that got the truth to everything I think so often we don't a we don't want to bother other people but we also don't want to be seen as inferior at anything mixed with the fact that we probably have perfectionist tendencies as well is not a not an ideal or healthy way to live and I think she embodies absolutely all of those things as well and I've only got that perspective of of not being close to someone with ADHD and having friends with ADHD um, from my perspective it looked like it really nails it particularly as a woman with ADHD and maybe less that hyperactive impulsive type but that inattentive type of of ADHD like someone like my sister who's you know very vocal about it would meet the criteria for so in terms of the, the actual criteria, inattention, I think she just, 
you know, hits the nail in terms of um, poor organisation, um, losing things necessarily for her tasks, being easily distracted, uh, difficulty sustaining attention, um, not being able to listen when spoken to. Like so many times Wayman's trying to talk to her and she's just not listening <laughs> and, and <laughs> in the IRS building as well making it lacks lacks attention to detail and all of those kind of things but I think it's really important to like when I look at ADHD criteria it always looks so negative all of these things like difficulty with attention like oh they struggle but when you actually look at all the things that's going on in Evelyn's life she's having to plan a party do the taxes um, have a conversation with her daughter and try and connect with her daughter um, find people's dry cleaning and run a laundromat um her husband's trying to talk to her if if you had all those things going on at once of course you're gonna be distracted and not be able to concentrate on this and that I think it's it's unfortunately one of those kind of things where quite often and I think especially as a woman because I think there is this sense that we need to help other people Mm -hmm. with without asking for help and I think that's you know this kind of patriarchy that's embedded in us from a very young age, which is mm-hmm. awful. And then when you mix that with the fact that you don't want to ask for help and are trying to do so many things, I think it just comes across so well in this movie and comes across so well with her. And I guess it's almost like, you know, it's it's sort of that uh, metaphor of the multiverse is having, being everywhere everything all at once, like being in more than one multiverse. It's almost, that is almost one of the sort of, I don't like to use superpower, but like the strength of being someone with ADHD is your mind having a lot of things on the go. Sometimes that is, is, is that sort of true to you? I, yeah, absolutely. I think whenever we talk about ADHD, all anyone ever talks about is those very negative things, Yeah, uh, which is so unfortunate because ultimately we're just really looking for dopamine but <laughs> exactly, it's all we want. It's all. Um, it is. <laughs> but there is those things where our brains can be in a million different places at once, mm-hmm. and we can quite often handle a million different scenarios at once. If I was in an apocalyptic situation, I would absolutely want to have someone with ADHD on my side because I know while they're dealing with what's immediately in front of them. They have 17 other action plans for things that are going to go wrong and Mm. that they will be able to jump into those plans at the drop of a hat and make decisions when they need to make decisions. And I don't think that that gets talked about enough. And I think, you know, then there's a million other things that don't get talked about enough because ultimately she is achieving so much. At that stage, Mm. is she doing it well? Absolutely not. But, I mean, by the amount of stacks of paper she has on her desk, it's been a long time of mm. existing in this way. 100%, and she yeah. can't have been that terrible the entire time, you know what I mean? And to, when you think about it, like I guess this is her quote-unquote worst self where bad at so many things but she does so many things but yeah. she's not She's not a failure. Like she, I don't see her as a failure. Like the fact that she's got to where she is with so many things going on, she's actually – doing okay <laughs> like yeah. it could be so much worse they haven't lost the laundromat yet but it's when I think their ending is very much like she's I think the movie isn't saying like you know she needs to be less ADHD I think it's really the ending trying to be present 
and also gaining that help is actually what she needs and accepting that love and help from her family Um, because you sort of see her zone out again at that last interaction in the IRS um, office before the credits roll and and then she asks oh sorry what did you say rather than sort of masking and saying no I'm I'm paying attention Um, so I think that's a really important message of you know acceptance of ADHD but helping having some tools to manage it sort of so that you can function. Uh, anything else you want to talk about, like the representation of ADHD in the film? Um, I will say this is a really important point for me. As a director who has ADHD and has made a movie about ADHD, the very worst thing he's done is made it over two hours long. <laughs> yeah. I was like, no, come on, what also, are you doing? like prank us into thinking it ends at one point but it keeps going. Like that's just mean. <laughs> That was the one thing where I was like, you need to work on that because it's not going to hold. <laughs> I guess on that point too, they an interview with Jamie and Michelle, we're talking about how the, the two um, directors really planned everything very meticulously um, before filming so that the shoot was quite smooth, which is pretty incredible. Like they had it all down and they had time to do, to change things a little bit as well and, and improvise. So the fact that, they were so organised is also pretty incredible given, um, you know, the diagnosis that Daniel Kwan ends up having as well. Yeah, I think as well, like I always I always find, especially with myself, when I am organised, I am not regular organised. I am obscenely organised. <laughs> I am, I am colour-focused. I am hyper-focused. I, everything is highlighted with tabs and every little piece of information you can ever need is there. And not only that, it is clear and it is succinct for people as well. So I think like they just hit that nail on the head. They were just like, if mm-hmm. we're going to do this, we have to do it well. Because when you when you do do that, you go into overdrive with it. But if you don't, you are fucked. You are truly fucked. <laughs> when you set yourself up as big a task as that, yeah. yeah. It helps if it's your special interest. <laughs> So going to intergenerational trauma, I'll just talk a little bit about that in terms of accuracy in the film. And I, I guess, you know, we both haven't got that that background that the family in the, in the film does. But I do like from my sort of psychology background what it's sort of describing. I think it's very nuanced and I think it's um, – a story that's not doesn't hit you over the head with that intergenerational trauma. Although, you know, when you go back through her past, there's definitely lots of moments where you're like, oh, she was kind of abandoned by her father and, you know, shunned for marrying Wayman and obviously those things are going to um, impact. But then what, what I think was dealt with really beautifully was how that impacts her relationship with Joy, um, giving her quite a lot of unprocessed sort of untapped trauma and a difficulty with connecting with her mother and clearly like Joe Butapaki is really what comes of that is that nihilism and depression and I think it's it's you know Evelyn sort of goes on the journey of acknowledging that she needs to actually recognize that trauma and how that might affect how she relates to people and only once she recognizes that she can make some change but she doesn't go overboard she doesn't become a different person overnight. Like she tells Becky that she needs to grow her hair, which is actually sort of her accepting Becky, but then also giving her the same shit she gives her daughter. <laughs> so I can, I just think that's a very truthful depiction of that sort of journey. 
uh, in as much as you can. Like your parents aren't going to change overnight once they recognize, you know, if they've gone through, if you're in that sort of situation, they're, they're going to be themselves, but at least some of that insight and some of that presentness in that moment can make a big difference. I, I think as well, and it's it's probably a simple way of looking at it, but I think you can try as hard as you want to be a better parent than your parent was. Mm-hmm. And that everyone I think goes into parenthood with some sort of mindset on that of there are things that happen to me that I want to absolutely make sure I don't pass on, but you can't control how your trauma is passed on through your parenting as well. But the fact, you know, that that is recognized in the story and that is true that, you know, that her response to it is to react just as she was, would have done previously, but how there is still, that's kind of seen as an act of care Mm -hmm. rather than something that's infuriating because you do see that there was a recognition and that there is kind of slight growth through that relationship yeah. as well, I think is pretty Yeah, definitely. It's, it's, and I don't think Joy is asking for her to completely change. She's just wanting that acceptance in, in whatever way that is given and I guess acknowledgement of what she's going through and, and being able to s- sit through what she's going through. And I just want to make a point too of Evelyn having to look after the father that, essentially rejected and abandoned her and then being sort of responsible for him. Um, I'm sure that happens. I know that happens to a lot of families and it must be so hard um, to feel, you know, to not be able to deal with that and that rejection and but but have to give them the care and attention that, you know, they deserve as a human being. It would be so difficult. And I know my parents have gone through that a little bit. Yeah, I think as well, I didn't have the best relationship with my mother um, at all times. And there was definitely kind of a point there where you kind of have to, especially my mom got sick, so it was, a, it was quite difficult. But there's a mm. point where you have to just, you have to kind of remove yourself and realize that they're never going to acknowledge or even see what the trauma and what those issues were Mm -hmm. and so you kind of have to make that decision of and it's so difficult to make of can I just put this to bed because there's another part of this relationship that I need to do which is caretaking or is it something that I kind of want to sit with forever and continue to have impact me and I think I hope I think with Evelyn it was something where she kind of realized through that journey that it's not something that she can really control and could kind of put to the side because it's yeah you're right it's incredibly tough yes and I guess she does sort of confront Gogo um at one point and you know say to him that you know she's not going to do what he did and I I don't know how accurate that might be (laughs) that's pretty it's very rare that we get those moments um and his response wasn't negative (laughs) um I don't know how accurate that whole exchange would have been, but, um, you know, it's very powerful being able to do something like that. But generally, yeah, it's hard. It's very difficult to have that journey that Evelyn does have. Yeah. I mean, I think for the sake of the movie, it was probably a nice way to show how I think she- it was a helpful moment. Yeah. I'll give it a pass. It's more for, it's more yeah. for Evelyn and, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll definitely let it pass. And in terms of joy, of that depiction of joy's depression, I found that really uh, relatable and interesting especially how the existentialness of her experience and how that relates back to her experience from her mother because I think it's it's all related. 
how did you before I go into my spiel what did you think of that sort of depiction like I thought it was I thought it was really interesting I haven't had a lot of experience with depression anxiety yes but depression is not something kind of that has taken a big part of my life but I think the way she kind of I think it was so at times so subtle with her character um which I found really interesting that it's an Mm -hmm. because it is an underlying constantly bubbling thing rather than something that's forward and outwards at all times yeah I I agree I think it was like obviously it's in almost a cartoonish way as Joby Tupaki yes Um, (laughs) but it's in in theme with the film but also I don't know I find it relatable because how she finds like the way she she's very articulate in saying that you know when you I'm experiencing everything all at once and it means that everything is meaningless. You know, yeah. I've experienced everything and, and I'm not getting any meaning out of it. So everything's meaningless, uh, nothing matters, and that's really depressing. Um, and she, the only thing left is to become nothing and explode the world, which I find like almost a metaphor for when you go through that really low depression it's it's almost a metaphor for that self-destruction or suicide is creating that everything bagel to destroy everything so I think a lot of people would relate to that experience um and one of my things is death anxiety and existential dread um so I'm just absolutely terrified of like the afterlife and I just can't think about it and for that sort of reason, like you can't just continue on and and what does that mean and, you know, experience everything. Like it just seems very meaningless to me. So I really, that really related to me of her sort of that existential feeling that she has. And I think it's it's kind of a hopeful message of of where, where it ends up going and that, okay, if everything means nothing, then you can create your own meaning and let's just, you know, find meaning in the moments that bring us joy and kindness and it's a nice sort of way to try and quell some of that (laughs) existential dread it doesn't always help I'm sure but yeah I found that helpful. I do like that you have kind of this experience and connect with joy on this while I very much connect with Evelyn and that the fact that I'm like but everything means everything all the time. <laughs> Everything is so emotional all the time. Um, it's that juxtaposition. It's kind of great. Yeah. And I think that's the beauty of the two characters as well and trying to get to, trying to figure each other out um, and connect when they're so different. They're so, so different. Yeah, I quite, I quite liked that. And I think one thing that... I love a film where everything is, is relevant, like nothing is a mistake or just because um the googly eyes uh lots of articles mention the googly eyes and how the googly eye is kind of the inverse of the bagel so the bagel is a black circle with a white inner and then the googly eye is a white circle with a black inner so it's kind of the opposite of that existentialism and it's sort of embracing the joy of Wayman who puts the googly eyes everywhere so it's um almost like to counteract that depression it's that joy also, it's opening, like she puts it in her um, forehead and it's opening up her third eye, quote unquote, which is also becoming sort of enlightened, um, which is all a little bit wellness and wishy-washy, but <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'm I okay think it, it. it definitely has to connect at some point, but it is such a wonderful way to bring him into their family story as well. 
because it's it is not just about these two characters with you know completely opposite ideals and emotions there is a third person that I think quite often gets forgotten probably so I think it is a really beautiful way to kind of re-bring him into the story in a really subtle way plus if you are ever sad and at an a great independent cinema around this country, I can guarantee you if you look hard enough, you will still find those Google eyes stuck everywhere. Amazing. In forgotten places that people can't reach to take down. <laughs> That's so good. Oh, just one other thing about the bagel too. Apparently it's actually in line with physics that it's a bagel that she creates. And obviously there's a there's a pun in there of, you know, you order an everything bagel, which is probably more common in the US, I think. And, you know, what is an everything bagel? But also there's evidence apparently that the universe could be bagel shaped. And one of the Daniels um, said that there's a scientific calculation you can do for any object in the universe called a Schwarzschild radius, an object that when you compress it down to that radius becomes a black hole. And there's actually evidence that black holes are more likely to be bagel shaped as well. So it's very interesting. That is the most ADHD fact to know. <laughs> that is 100% a 2am Google about bagels that leads you down the path and now that you know much about bagels. <laughs> um, I feel that Evelyn, I guess there's this overarching feeling that she feels quite unsatisfied with where she is in life um, and doesn't really have room for joy in her life. She's just kind of trying to get by and it's no coincidence that her daughter's name is Joy, I think. I think we all know that. And I guess it really speaks to some of that fear that I definitely have is that, you know, we haven't manifested the most amazing life that we could possibly be capable of um, and often wish that we could sort of go back and do something again. You know, and she has a taste of what that could look like, which at first makes her just want to sort of leave this life, but then she kind of learns to accept that worst version of you. Does that relate to you at all? I know I definitely relate to that feeling. I mean, I think as as people of the modern world, there's this sense of overworking or over putting ourselves in these situations because we think it's going to be or result in an ideal happiness and Mm -hmm. quite often it doesn't result in that or you just kind of come to the realization that you don't know what makes you happy or things that you've worked so hard for don't make you happy Mm -hmm. and I think that was a big part of the pandemic as well I think a lot of people kind of I don't think I know a lot of people had complete upheavals of their life because they realized what we were living wasn't an ideal way to be living and I think as when you throw ADHD on top of that we're already overworking ourselves and our brains are already in overdrive that I don't think that there's a lot of time to stop and be in a present moment and realize what we'd like and I feel like personally I, I have so many situations where I have to stop and I don't know what I like. I kind of go like, mm. is this what I like? Or I don't know who I am. Or I have really lack a self, a sense of self because I'm so preoccupied all the time with other things. Mm-hmm. And I think that's exactly what she's experiencing. And I think as well that whole like you work so hard for so long and then suddenly you wake up and three years have passed and you're yeah. kind of in this stunned moment of not knowing if it's what you want. And I think that's a really positive thing. And feeling that sense of not progressing 
um, you're in the sort of same place and not feeling like you're being challenged or you, you've, you're growing as a person being in that yeah. sort of stasis. Yeah. And I think maybe that also connects back with his discovery of ADHD because I think, you know, when I was writing those long emails to my psychologist, there was a lot of why aren't I progressing or like why am, why do I feel stuck? And I think it's a mm. very common thing to reflect on, you know, if you are undiagnosed with it. Um, mm. a lack of a sense of a lack of progression when in actual fact you know you've led a very big life and done a lot of yes. great things and- there's so much there's so much in this film that's relatable but there's also lots of layers of relation as well so uh next section is about stereotypes um and this is probably a good time to ask there's a few things that isn't as great about this film as there are great things in it. What what were some of the things you didn't quite like about it? It's probably lack of a stereotype thing because it's I think how she's portrayed is quite excellent. And I think as someone who perhaps doesn't know they have ADHD, I think it's a really great thing. The issues that I had just I found the film really full on and chaotic to watch, which is ultimately the point of it though, right? Is that is that and so many people find such a great connection with that and I know that they wanted to show an example of what it's like to live with ADHD and I think it is an excellent example I think the reason I don't like it as much is because it is the exact opposite of how I want my brain to be (laughs) someone else's chaos and so which is just far too overwhelming when I'm already dealing with my own but aside from that I think it does a really great job at kind of showing things yeah I don't really think I have any issues with it on that on that regard. When I look at it in terms of the film almost emulating ADHD and that there's lots of different threads to keep track of as yeah. as it continues and it's not till maybe halfway through the film that we actually realize what's going on as well. <laughs> like at first it's, it's quite confusing initially for a little while and it's it's almost a little bit um, disjointed in terms of it's linear but it's kind of not at the same time like it's also very much not. Is that yep. an accurate depiction of what it's like to live with ADHD or is that a little bit overblown or I think I think it's definitely dramatized but I do think that at times what I like about my medication is that it takes that away. Mm-hmm. It doesn't take my personality or my sense of self away. It takes that overwhelmingness away mm-hmm. because there were times especially at work, you know, I, I come from managing cinemas. There are were times where you'd have 900 people coming in from a film and four different events on and 70 staff on and something breaks and you've got to run AV for this. And that is very much in those circumstances what your brain is like. It is darting from place to place. I think that I would have been a nightmare to try and have a cohesive conversation with. Mm-hmm. I am still at times, especially if I have a lot to say and I don't have an agenda for myself, trying to kind of connect the dots in mm-hmm. what I talk about it can be quite difficult. It's funny, I one of my very good friends, Teresa, has ADHD as well, and I think her girlfriend sometimes sits to the side and is just like, what, when she just <laughs> kind of have this conversation because you just really don't know where it's going to go. Yeah, And I think that it shows that incredibly well, that it is so chaotic and that, yes, there, there's something linear about it. We are existing and we are making a sense and we are achieving things. But at the same time, you don't exactly know how that is happening mm-hmm. and you don't know how if it's going to continue to happen. So I think that that's an incredibly 
well and very complex way of, of showing that. Mm-hmm. I don't think that I could have ever come up with that process. I think it's great filmmaking, but also the ability of, that they can self-reflect to see that in themselves. Yeah. Translate it onto a page and then onto screen, I think is incredibly talented. Yeah. Um, yeah. That they are definitely in therapy and working on themselves. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it is, and I think especially there's so many, you go on TikTok about it and there's so many people that are like, that's my brain. Like, you know, mm. other people are like, that's my brain. And then, so I think if you ever are unsure of what it is like, then yes, watch this movie because that is what it is like and it can be a living hell. <laughs> Well, it's good to know because I, I did wonder if it was a little bit, you know, for someone who experiences ADHD, if it's like a bit of a stereotype or is a bit on the nose in the way it's portrayed. So that's really good to know. For yeah. Obviously not everyone's going to have the same experience of ADHD and of watching this film, but that's, you know, I guess a consensus somewhere. I think my issues with stereotypes when it comes to ADHD is where people will kind of, you know, they, they do that thing where they're having a conversation and then it's like the person's being like, oh, squirrel or something. Uh, where yeah. it's just like, <laughs> that is so overly sympathetic, like overly simple. And like, yes, we can get like distracted very simply. Or yes, we kind of think, you know, in a weird moment, like, oh, driving my car today in the middle of a freeway, got, my thought was like, I wonder what bass, how how many bass players uh, are in certain bands and if there's <laughs> multiple ones. And literally I just pull over and look at it because I couldn't keep driving without looking that answer out. <laughs> but I think it's kind of, I think this way shows it in a really dynamic way way Mm -hmm. rather than a simplified way which is I think when it's that simplified doesn't give credit to how our brains work and how complex those Mm -hmm. continuous thoughts are when we're having them. Yeah I I totally agree and I think um, yeah Evelyn doesn't sort of she's not depicting the the difficult behavior sort of boy in the classroom that we usually see with ADHD Um, you know I don't think her depiction was stereotyped at all and I'd also feel that way about the the relationship with her and Joy. Like I think I think that's done in a very non-stereotypical way because there's there's no binary as well often with um, depictions of of sort of trauma in a relationship or in the family. The mum is villainized and the child is like, you know, the innocent abused child sort of thing. But you know, it's almost flipped on its head a little bit in that Evelyn is really the person we're rooting for and she's she's definitely not blamed or or villainized for for what has happened and Joy is even almost the villain at least one version of Joy is anyway. But and I think that's really interesting. I think a to write about a, a mother-daughter relationship is and to do it well is something. Mm. But I think when you're a man writing that and to do it the way that they have done is is quite I think it's quite impressive it's pretty impressive yeah watching the film you you know some films you're watching you're like yeah this was a man who wrote this they don't really get it it didn't feel this way with it with this no not at all and I would like to thank his probably um over researching abilities for that yes yes definitely uh there's a few things in it that I thought maybe were a little bit maybe stereotypical or a little bit tropey I guess the message that it's joy and positivity that's kind of the antidote to depression um anyone who's going through a depression if someone's like just be kind you just want to slap them in the face and it's very it's almost a bit of a a wellness warrior sort of 
message, you know, just being positive isn't really going to cure your depression. But I think it gets a past in the context of the multiverse because it's, uh, you know, everything is over the top. And, you know, the the fight scene where instead of fighting with violence, she's fighting with kindness, she's killing them with kindness, um, <laughs> with, you know, all the things that they want and need, like that's very over the top and cartoonish and that's what the film is. And I guess, you know, things like the yin and yang concept, the antidote to the, the darkness is the light, it's also very culturally relevant as well. Yeah, I, I do. I the, That idea of fighting depression with joy and positivity really does irk me a yeah. lot. Um, I mean, I, I hate kind of CBT therapy for that very reason because mm-hmm. I find it incredibly passive aggressive. <laughs> yeah. I do think there's the a nice... for this thought, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I do think there's a, this little nugget that I think is quite a nice thing when it comes to having a relationship with someone with ADHD, because ultimately I think that you, I don't think that I could have a relationship with someone that is incredibly structured and serious Mm -hmm. because it's never going to work. I'm going to drive them crazy. Mm -hmm. And by not in no way do I mean to do that, but I think just simply by the way that I exist in this world, I think that there would be a lot of troubles there and I think I'm, I think that, you know, having someone that's overly positive and has that joy, even if in this movie it is kind of really simplified, is something that ADHD people need to look out for a little bit more, whether it's kind of finding someone that, that brings that to them or kind of reminding themselves that they're allowed to have that. I think yeah. that's a nice little thing. But in this circumstance, it's like, oh, just turn it down. And she does need to, yeah, I, she does need to sort of, she goes from finding way in just like an irritation and annoyance and being like, what did my silly husband say to embracing yeah. that and acknowledging that that's actually going to be complementary to her brain. His brain kind of yeah. complements her brain. It's also a kind of yin and yang concept as well. Um, so if we see it that way, then it becomes a little less on the nose because it's less curative but more just like how to manage a little bit more manageably. Just a few other things. I think I love the hot dog fingers. It's very, very funny. But I do, the fact that they got really good with their feet and you see them playing piano and touching each other with their feet, it's it's funny and, and it made me laugh and it's, it's, a, it's obviously played for jokes. But also it is accurate. Um, a lot of people who are amputees or have um, limb differences, you know, make up for it using, you know, their feet or or other sort of um, strengths that they do have and it kind of shouldn't be funny (laughs) I I very much very get that yeah I think I kind of almost saw it though and I'm only looking at it of the lens of having ADHD is that I almost saw it as an analogy of something that we're very good at which is being very adaptable to situations Mm. and so if something doesn't work for us, we will always find a way. Another way. To get it done. Yeah. And so when I look at it through that lens, I think it's kind of great because it is that sense of just like what you're given doesn't work, so how are you going to fix that? Yeah. But then when I look at it at a broader disability spectrum, no, we shouldn't be laughing at it, and it is something that people do all the time. Yeah. I, I, I'm still <laughs> smiling thinking about it. But I know, yeah. you know someone with a limb difference will maybe see that and be 
offended not so much at what happens but the fact that it's played for a joke um that's my only real concern (laughs) with the film (laughs) but everything in it like you know even the fact that her kung fu um mentor in that universe is female which is you know not common in a lot of well at least you know hollywood movies that i've seen so like just those little details are kind of done in less stereotypical ways along the way, mostly. I think there must have been a lot of conversation at the start of this movie of really seeing the issues in how films are made from representation on screen in every facet and really actively trying to create something different. Mm, yes. Um, it's not a normal film. <laughs> By any means. No, I think there's so much care around every single decision. that Nothing was just done for the sake of doing it. There was yeah. obviously a conversation about every single thing, which I think really shows and it's something I really appreciate about the film. Do we think the film was helpful or harmful in terms of its depiction of ADHD particularly and intergenerational trauma? Yeah, I think with ADHD I think it's incredibly helpful. I think... We're in this kind of, we talked about it earlier, but I think we're in this space in time where so many more people are getting diagnosed because so many different facets of it are being recognised that have never been recognised before. Mm -hmm. And I think it's incredibly helpful in these moments to educate people, A, so that people can kind of see those symptoms and go, maybe that's me, or have that moment of joy of seeing themselves represented on screen or or helping them discover something. But also because I think by making it digestible like this, it takes away a part of the stigma of having Mm. ADHD because, you know, we've spoken all this time, you know, quite often about how we only see these negative things and I think unless you have that brain, it's so incredibly difficult to realise what it is like to experience life with a brain that's not neurotypical. And I think it does a really great job at showing that. And I think there are people that are going to walk out being like, there's no way someone's brain can be like that. But it's just like, yeah, yeah there is. <laughs> so I do think it's really helpful um, in a lot of different ways. Yeah, I love that. I I completely agree. And just like you said, um, of people saying, ah, this movie is my brain, like it's clearly resonating with a lot of people. Um, And I think what I really love is the messages are really, the messages are relatable but also positive without being sort of making great claims of how you need to be if you have ADHD or what will fix you. Like there's no... I think the big theme is self-acceptance and accepting whatever version of you you are because that has value whether you're a, um, you know, action movie star or if you're just the worst version of yourself, you still have value and you're still important. And knowing that there's nothing you can do, you're never going to not have ADHD or be neurodiverse. What you can do is... Um, have the insight of where when you need some assistance along the way and acknowledging that it's okay to be you I guess Um, you know I feel like by the end of it it's like I'm not she's not masking as much as she was at the beginning of it so I think it's I think it's it's reducing that stigma in how it actually portrays the ADHD as well yeah and I think that's one of the best things about the ending of this film especially for a film that is so incredibly chaotic, 
is that at the end of the film, she's still the exact same person. Yeah, yeah, and exactly. She hasn't she, actually changed a huge amount. No, and she hasn't actually changed. There's been no huge aha moments other from the fact that she needs kindness mm. and that she loves the people around her and that she's made very, very tiny changes that have already completely changed her relationships um, and her, the way she sees herself in the world and also that every single person at the start of the film that was a villain is not at all a villain. Exactly, just yeah. Trying to help you exist in this world that have to be tough at times. And I think the the way they stop being a villain is through connection as well. Yes. Yeah. Connecting with that person in some level and acknowledging that we're all just human in this multiverse. Yeah. yeah. It's 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 quite beautiful. <laughs> it is. It's really, it's really beautiful. It's a really incredible and stunning piece of film. And I um, no, I don't see how they're going to top making a film like this. I know. Where do you go from here? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Go from that to this. Like, where do you go from here? It, it, it might end up being like a multi-sensory experience and <laughs> we're all going to be rep- repulsed as well as, yeah, yeah. enchanted. <laughs> and I think with that as well, while – Evelyn isn't diagnosed in the movie and I'm not sure that she needed to be to be honest she because she does actually acknowledge her problems and that's probably the more important um message what do you do you think do you think it would have been good if she was diagnosed even though it would be a very off-brand moment look first of all I think for someone of her generation I don't think a diagnosis would help not because it doesn't give you answers, but I think it's a generational thing where, yes. you know, she comes from an older generation where this is just like, oh, it's the, that's that's the thing where you can't pay attention and you're lazy, right? Like I don't yeah. think that that's going to help her In that context, anything. yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. Yep. yeah, and I think ultimately like A, seeking a diagnosis is a very lengthy, mm-hmm. very expensive process. Mm-hmm. And ultimately like, yes, it's wonderful to have access to uh, different sorts of therapy and different medication, the real things that help are those small differences of acceptance mm-hmm. and and being kind to yourself and trying to figure out what works best for you. Yeah. And so ultimately I think that is a kind of a great place to sit. I don't think a diagnosis would do, would change her life. I think it would probably hinder her life. Um, but yeah. I think these steps are more. I totally agree. And I think in the context, if we get very realistic of her actually seeking that out, you know, who knows how long that would take and how much money that they don't have, um, you know, especially in the US, here it's cheaper over here and it's already very expensive over here. Um, so, yeah, it just probably wouldn't happen in the first place, um, even if she wanted to go down that road. And I think what sort of helps really more is the fact that um, Daniel Kwan has spoken about um, ADHD a lot in those um, interviews and, you know, around press in the film and explaining, like he's even spoken about statistics that he saw where adults with undiagnosed ADHD have a shorter lifespan by 15 years. I haven't actually seen the data, so don't quote me on how accurate that is, but there's lots of, you know, possible causes for that. But, you know, one of those comorbidities would be depression and, you know, for some of those um, unfortunate statistics, suicide, which is why 
he really wants to share some of the statistics around it and and break some of the stigma through discussing about it and he's saying yeah a diagnosis removes you from the judgment so that you can understand yourself and forgive yourself um so i think just the fact that this film was made and that he's talking about it is very powerful within itself yeah and i would say as well that a diagnosis is wonderful but if you're in that position where you can't do it or or it's just you're not being listened to which i think is another big thing as yes, well 100 percent. Yeah. i mean seeking out things that are going to help you like tiktok is an insanely good platform for it mm. not for taking medical advice but for simply sharing tools that help you and help yes. other people because that's ultimately all you need is really to help find those tools that are going to work for you and even just and so connecting think- and not and sharing experiences so people feel seen and feel part of a community exactly so I think just yeah I think he's really done a huge amount to to open up the conversation you know and hopefully show that even people with ADHD can make movies incredible movies not just a movie not movie (laughs) fighting corpse not only to to make the highest grossing a 24 movie of all time yeah so (laughs) it's pretty incredible just one last thing is I really like the the messages it's almost like a little bit of a script for any parent that acknowledges or wants to acknowledge or wants to connect with their their daughter or son or whoever and finds it difficult and if they see themselves in Evelyn how what she needed to do to start building that relationship and her journey like at first acknowledging that her daughter is you know having lots of feelings she's feeling depressed and then you know her first thought is to blame it on Jobu Tupaki when it's not not seeing her own you know part in that and then realizing where that might her own relationship might be influencing that, confronting him, and then realizing that her daughter really just wants her mum. She just wants her mum to be there. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a little bit uh, on the nose, but when she, it, Jobu's trying to fight her and she's just got her arms open, it's a bit yeah. silly, but it's also like such a powerful image of I just want, I'm just going to embrace you. I'm just here for you. I think that's um, and that's it on so many levels of of if you go through depression or you go through anxiety or you have ADHD. I think if you're a parent and you don't know how to deal with that, it's you just need to listen and yeah, acknowledge it. Just be and there. You don't need to, yeah, and I think downplaying it is a terrible thing to do. Yes, I have my brother who is the best meaning person in the world with the biggest heart and is a nurse when I kind of told him was just like, oh, well, we're all a little bit neurodivergent. And that purely came from the space <laughs> of trying to make me feel better about myself. Yeah. Um, but it's just like, I think for a lot of it, it's it's just being like, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Yeah. And we're happy to have just discovered it and we just want someone to listen and we're probably going to talk too much. But like. And have space have for it. Yeah, yeah. I think yep. that's the most important, important place to be. Yep, Exactly. Uh, and you know it's it's not a huge fix it's just it's it's really being present and being mindful which is a very over overarching theme in the film which I think the googly eyes really present Um, also the fact that they're doing accounting suggests accountability so I think there's also a message of being (laughs) accountable as well which is you know 
the the whole thing in the film is Evelyn trying to be accountable for her expenses, which is the whole reason why she's in the tax office. But it's also being accountable for yourself and the mistakes you've made along the way and where you might need to repair them. Like, yes, you want to be present and you want to be kind, but you also need to be accountable, particularly around those relationships as well. It's not a we want a clean slate, but we also need some repair. And, and the only way to sort of heal some of those traumas and damages, or at least try to, is to acknowledge they're there and acknowledge your part in that. So um, I think that's a really powerful message as well. Well, on that note, is there anything harmful in the film? <laughs> I mean, aside from myself, the idea that like how lovely and peaceful would it be to be a rock? Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think, look, I think there is nothing overly harmful and I think that there is stuff in there that, yes, could be worked on but I think comes with nothing but good intention yes. from a good group of people. You yes. know, it's, and I think there are also people that would be up for discussion and up for, you know, kind of realising that and talking about it. It's not Definitely. something they want to sweep under the rug. So I don't think there's anything harmful there and I I don't think it's going to have a huge negative impact on the world. If anything, I think it's had an incredibly positive impact on so many different people. I definitely agree. I think it could be seen as maybe for some people too much sensory overload in the film, which could limit people's access to seeing the film. Um, And not everyone saw the meaning in it, um, which I don't. I think there's a lot of meaning in it, but that's just me. There was one article that thought that there was performative representation um, around the Asian community, and I can't speak to that, uh, obviously, but that was an interesting perspective. I, I feel like there is so little representation in mainstream, and this is a mainstream film, regardless yeah, of how yeah. you want to see A24. This was a mainstream it's film. It's still that being had a screened in cinemas, at yeah. the, which is pretty incredible. Yeah. And it's, you know, it, in Australia it was released by a major distributor, you mm. know, that had millions of dollars behind it. So I think that it's so important to have, you know, reput- representation from different cultures. And I think, like, is it performative? Like, I can't speak to that without being from that community. But do we need to have more of these films consistently mm-hmm. yes absolutely 100%, yeah. it's not a situation where we can just be like well we did two films so we're done right oh, it's fine oh there's no, also the pixar to... films as well <laughs> like <laughs> turning red so you know tick that off for kids as well <laughs> yeah but it, it needs to continuously happen yeah. for the rest of human existence exactly you know, it's it's not a it's not a one and done thing it is this is life now and we need to have we're these gonna people and have these stories on our screen yes which is so good and I really hope that continues um it sounds like um Kei Hui Kwan has more roles coming up which is very exciting so can't wait to see so it seems like this is really um continuing that trend upwards which is great yeah and look I am I think that she will absolutely receive uh, Academy nomination for the I'm role. I'm actually going to watch the Oscars this year for the first time in years because <laughs> I want to see that happen. <laughs> I wouldn't. I also wouldn't discredit her winning for it. I think she's so incredible in it. Hmm. But I also I am willing to put money, and I do do that on the fact that it will win Best Original Screenplay. For yes. Sure. If it doesn't, I will um, rampage and riot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the Oscars are very flawed, but come on, how could it not? 
if, if you don't mind indulging me, if we go through the final scores of our categories. So in terms of lived experience, um, do we think there was enough lived experience there to get a point? I think so. And I think I think the wonderful thing about ADHD and when you first get diagnosed is that it is your hyperfixation topic. Mm-hmm. So I have no doubt that he did more than enough research and then has lived experience to be able to write a character like this. So, yes. yes. Definitely. And um, they speak to it a lot in their interviews. So I 100% believe there was enough there. Big, big tick, I reckon. Accuracy? Oh, yes. Yeah. I don't think there's any debating that Um, from your perspective and from my perspective in different characters. I think it gets a tick. Stereotypes? Um, I think, yes, it has a lot of stereotypes, but I don't think in a negative way. No. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know, like... Does that mean like a low score or a half a tick? I think I think I, it's okay to stereotype. Yeah, and I think it's done. It, it's it's one big campy film in the first place, so I think it passes, and I think it subverts more than it actually um, promotes some of those stereotypes. So I'm comfortable giving it a point if you are. Yeah, yeah, me too. And I think we can agree whether it was helpful or harmful. It definitely was helpful. Yeah, incredibly helpful. Jordan, is there anything you wanted to plug? Did you want to share your Instagram? Sure. I have an Instagram called Jordan Bastian Draws where I post. I'm an illustrator as well, so I post on there. Um, also, my the distributor I work for has a wonderful Australian horror movie called Sissy currently <gasps> out. Oh, really? Because I go see that. I was trying to go to the premiere for that, but I. I've double booked, so I couldn't go. I didn't realize that's awesome. Fantastic. It's very fun. It's a very kind of, it's a great low budget film. It deals with trauma. So, you know. 100% my, up my alley. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Psycho Cinematic Podcast. If you really enjoy our podcast and want more, don't forget to subscribe to our Patreon. For only just $3 a month, you get access to lots of exclusive content, bonus episodes, and of course your opinion matters more to us than those who don't subscribe. Follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook, and chuck us a wholesome review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Good Pods. Do it. See you later. This podcast is not designed to be therapeutic, prescriptive, or constitute a formal diagnosis for any listener. For a longer version of this disclaimer, please check the episode notes on your podcast app.